guys can, there it is, open up to 1 Thessalonians, and we'll be in chapter 4 this morning. We are picking up um, in this letter that Paul has written to this newly formed church in, in Thessalonica. So far, he's spent quite a bit of time kind of making sure that their past relationship is good and um, that, that everything's in good standing and kind of reconciled between them because things kind of ended weird. And this is something that every Christian should strive to do. If you know about a relationship where things are kind of amiss or off or you're not sure, we should seek to reconcile those things. And that's exactly what he's done. Uh, now, Timothy has come back from a visit to Thessalonica, and, and he's returned with a good report to Paul about how the church is doing. But no doubt he also brought back some things that needed to be worked on. So it's, you know, it's a new church. New Christians need to be guided and discipled. The truth is, old Christians need to be guided and discipled too. But that's uh, most likely Timothy came back with some things that he wanted Paul to address. So uh, from this point forward, that's kind of what we're going to see Paul doing is after kind of a lengthy introduction and making sure things were okay, he's going to get into the, the heart of the letter. First, he's going to address the subject of their sanctification by asking them and urging them to walk in a way that pleases God. So this is kind of where the rubber meets the road and how we live out our Christianity. And it's clear that Paul has already talk to them about these things. If you read through this section, you'll say, you know, as, as we've done, as we've said, as you've received. So he's already talked to them, but he, he knows he needs to do it again, especially because the world continues to tell us that it's okay to live differently than what God lays out in his word. And, and, and it tries to convince us that God's word is outdated, that it's, you know, it isn't culture, culturally relevant anymore. These are the kinds of things we hear. And, and of course, this would have been going on there as well. So, so it's important for us to be continually reminded of you know how, how we are supposed to live, how we live matters. It matters to God, it matters to the church, and it matters to those who, are, who know we're Christians and are watching. They're always watching, right? It's just one of those things that, that we have to realize. People are going to constantly observe who we are to see if who we say we are matches you know, the talk and the walk kind of thing. God has called his people to be distinct, and that's what we're going to look at today, set apart. Um, so in the passage today, we're going to read uh, verses 1 through 8 in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you have received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us to impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So Paul starts out this, this uh, chapter, the fourth chapter of this letter, with the word, finally, then brothers. And, and it's kind of funny. We make fun of Paul sometimes because, you know, midway, this is about the midway point of the letter. He does the same thing in Philippians where finally, so you kind of, you know what this is like. If a pastor says in closing, you know, you might as well settle in and get comfortable because, you know, that word doesn't mean what we think it means apparently. And that's kind of, but, but Paul's really saying like, look, we've talked about these other things. Now we're getting to the heart of the matter. So I don't think he knows he's, you know, he's not really closing things up here. It's clear from, from what we've already seen in this letter that Paul really loves this church. He really loves these guys, and he's fully invested in seeing them flourish as Christians. And so he's going to spend a lot of time and energy instructing them on how they're supposed to live now that they belong to Christ. 
Verse 1 establishes that. It says in their, identi their identity is now in the Lord Jesus. That's, that's who they are, in the Lord Jesus. And because that's true, they're now able to do the things that he says next. He says, you receive from us how you're supposed to walk and please God. You've been doing it, and you need to keep doing it more and more. I wish that when we, we became Christians that we immediately were made perfect and complete. Wouldn't that be fantastic if kind of you accepted God and then God kind of like took the, the sheet and pulled it off you like, voila, you know, a perfect Brent. That would be, but clearly that's not how it works, right? <laughs> I can say that, you know, for sure. It's, it's not how it works. At least it's, it's, it's at least not how it works from our vantage point experientially. There's a process of growing in our faith, growing in our knowledge, and growing in our obedience that each one of us has to go through. Paul refers to this process in verse 3 where he says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Sanctification is probably one of the most difficult things for us to understand as Christians. There are three major events that God does in the life of the Christian. Um, justification, sanctification, and glorification. They're all part of God's work to transform a sinner into a holy person, right? Justification happens the moment we believe, in an instant. Um, it's, it's basically when God, who is the judge, declares us not guilty. He declares us to be righteous. That, that's what justification is. It's solely based on Jesus paying our debt for us and having his record transferred to us. So when we're justified, we're now free from the penalty of sin. That's what that is. Our positional standing before God, even though we don't feel this way, is holy and blameless because the Bible says our life is hidden in Christ. So that's, that's our political, or political, strike that, our positional standing before God. Now glorification is when that becomes fully realized in our lives. That's a future event. It happens when Jesus returns and we're completely transformed. So when glorification happens, we become free from the presence and the possibility of sin. That's future. Sanctification is what happens between those two events. And, and it's, it's basically where we're freed from the power of sin. So penalty, justification, presence, glorification, just, sanctification is where we're freed from the, the power of sin. We don't have to continue to sin the way we used to. So in justification, Christ's righteousness is imputed to us. In our sanctification, it's imparted to us on a daily basis as we need it. So that's kind of the, the difference. But all three of these things are inseparably linked together. If the first one has happened, the other ones will happen. Even in a testimony today, somebody said, you know, I hope he doesn't give up on me. I hope he keeps doing these things. Well, he's promised he will. If the first one's happened, the others will happen. So trusting Christ as your Lord and Savior is the starting point. If you don't see any sanctification happening in your life, go back to step one. Okay, something, something's wrong there. So, um, so what is sanctification? The word itself literally means to be set apart for holy use. Okay, I like the Westminster Shorter Catechism's definition. It, it explains it this way. It's the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. It's a good definition. But like I said, I think of the, of the three of these things that we talked about, sanctification is the hardest one to explain. Why is that? Well, the, the first reason it's hard to explain is because it's hard to measure. Okay, it, It's often easier to see growth in somebody else's life 
than it is in your own life. I live with myself every day. I see that, you know, the, I see the changes on a second to second, minute by minute basis. But like, you know how it is when you, you there's a kid you haven't seen in a couple of years and then all of a sudden you see him and it's like, you, you have that my, how you've grown moment because the change is drastic. It's obvious. There's no mistaking it. But in our own lives, we just don't see it. So because hard, it's hard to measure, it's hard to know if it's actually happening sometimes. And that can be discouraging to us. So I would encourage you, you know, look back a few years on your life. Have you seen, you know, if you think about who you were two years ago, three years ago, four, are you seeing a, a trajectory of growth? Are you seeing something happening? Do other people see that in your life? It's a good thing to ask sometimes and to consider. Sometimes, you know, our growth chart isn't pretty. I don't know if you've ever seen one of those walls in people's houses where they kind of mark it up. And, you know, that's, that's sometimes it's like my growth chart probably looks pretty messed up. If you were to look at it on a graph, it would probably be like some growth, some, you know, it'd be, uh, you know, it's just kind of kind of weird. I don't know if you remember that. Um, I, I love this little uh, comic I saw one time. It's about the footprints. Is it footprints or footsteps? The poem, the famous poem, and it, footprints. And it basically says, my child, I never left you those places where you see one set of footprints. It was then that I carried you. And then the joke goes, and that long groove over there is, is where I had to drag you for a while. <laughs> it's like, that's kind of what my sanctifications looked like. Sometimes we go through rapid growth spurts, where we, we have this, you know, just seems like we're just growing in the Lord and things are clicking. And then other times it, feel, it feels like we're just stagnant or even going backwards. But the good news is that God is continually working. And, and I love that promise that we find in Philippians 1.6, that, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. So, you know, such an encouraging thing to think about. If he started a work in you, he's finishing it. He will do this. He will accomplish it. You know, in spite of you, which I think is fair. To, you know, we, we all can relate to that. But just keep in mind that the areas that he's working on in your life probably are not the areas that he's working on in somebody else's life. And this can be really hard for us. This can cause us to be judgmental. Um, you know, when we see a victory in our own life and, and then we start to think, well, I, you know, I'm doing good here. Why is nobody else doing good here? We, we think that way. We're all at different stages of sanctification. Um, you know, unlike those other things, this is a process that each of us goes through. If you're a new Christian, you're kind of at square one. If you're, you know, 30 years a Christian, God's probably done a lot more sanctifying in your life, hopefully. I remember when I first became a Christian, um, you know, at the time that I, I was 19, and I could not form a sentence without using about 30 swear words. I don't, I don't know why that was, but I just thought that was the way you spoke. So it was very colorful, and you know, I don't know what I was thinking, but that's how I talk. And when I became a Christian, I immediately was convicted of that, and that was probably the first big area that God cleaned up in my life was my, my potty mouth. But that wasn't the end of my sanctification. You know, that was just the first thing. The minute that got kind of taken you know, care of, all of a sudden, two more things popped up. <laughs> Right? And it just kind of kept working that way. Then, you know, he would work on these things and then like three more things would pop up. And it's like, oh, this is, this is going to just keep going. I grew a ton, but, but it's, it wasn't done yet. And so fortunately in his mercy, God doesn't reveal everything at once. I, I think about that. If he would have showed me everything all at the same time, I probably would have just, I don't know, imploded and, you know, just been so discouraged, but he, he was merciful and he showed me little things, little things, little things and worked on him. And so after 35 years, he's changed me a lot, but he continues to reveal things in me that I didn't even know were sin 
when I first became a Christian, things that I didn't even recognize as being something that offended him. And now the closer I grow towards him, the more I start to see things and realize things. And, and I'm grateful that he shows me these things. One day, like I said, the project will be finished, but there isn't a completion date in this lifetime. It's a process that continues until glorification. And that's when the declaration of who he says we are and the experience will finally meet up. I can't wait for that day. I know what's true, but it doesn't always feel true. One day it will. Okay. Now, a second reason that sanctification is hard for us to understand or explain is because it's not completely clear who's responsible for it in the Bible. Is it God or is it us? And the answer is yes. According to the Bible, yes. Both of those things. Okay, so when it comes to our justification and our glorification, we don't participate in either of those things at all. It's something God does alone. We're just passive recipients. There's no growth in either of those as well. They happen in an instant and they don't change. But sanctification is different. It gradually transforms us in an experiential way. Now, God is the only one who can make us holy. We can't make ourselves holy. Only he can do that. But we can certainly accelerate things and by the choices that we make. So God has provided all the necessary means for us to grow in holiness. I want to be more holy. I want to do that. Well, he's given, he's given us his word. He's given us prayer. He's given us each other, the church. He's given us all these different avenues and means whereby we can grow more, but we have to choose whether or not we're going to walk in those things, right? So it kind of comes down to this idea of we can do this the easy way or we can do it the hard way. Oh, it's going to happen. But, but the way we, we go about it, you know, well, if we do things like deny the flesh and walk in the spirit, we'll grow more. If we present ourselves as a living sacrifice to God, we'll grow more. It will happen. I, there was another little picture I saw one time, and this, I don't think it's mean-spirited. If it is, you can rebuke me later, but it was funny when I saw it. It says sanctification at the top, and it shows this escalator. And there's a very old guy that's getting on the escalator. And, and when he gets on, he starts, I don't know if he gets his hip on there. Pretty soon he ends up on the, on the, on the floor of the escalator and his feet are kind of up in the air. And he's, he's not hurt, but he's fl kind of flopping around. The whole time he's going up, but it ain't pretty. You know, and that's kind of how I feel about sanctification sometimes. We are moving in a direction. God has taken us there. But sometimes we just, man, we, we make it hard when we could make it much easier. Sometimes you just need to stand there and just let it, you know, let it happen. But we fight a little, right? The Bible also talks about sanctification as though it has happened, it is happening, and it will happen. So that's what makes it kind of confusing a little bit sometimes. We can correctly say, I am sanctified, I am being sanctified, and I will be sanctified, past, present, and future. Okay? So even though I know this to be true, it can still be frustrating because I don't feel holy, I don't feel sanctified, and I want to be. I know it's true positionally, but it doesn't always feel that way practically. And I think every Christian struggles with this to some degree. Now, it's interesting that the Greek word for sanctification is actually connected to the word saint. So you hear all the time when Paul would talk, you know, the saints in this church or the saints in that church, it's part of the same word. Saint is how God refers to all believers. And I don't know if it's because I grew up Roman Catholic or because I'm just aware of my sinfulness, but I have a really hard time thinking of myself as a saint. You know, St. Brent does not, just doesn't have a ring to it in my head at all. doesn't sound right. But the Bible says that that's what I am. A saint is someone whom God has set apart for himself for holy use. He set me apart as holy. And again, it's hard for me to think of myself as holy or consecrated. So it's helpful for me to think of, uh, to think of another thing in the, in the Bible 
that God sanctified, and, and, and it helps me to kind of figure this out a little bit. And that would be the Ark of the Covenant. When you think about that, what do you immediately think? Something holy, something consecrated, something, I mean, almost scary, right? What would happen? The Ark was where, I mean, really, if you think about it, all the Ark was, apart from God making it holy, what was it? It was a wooden box, but God made it holy, and his presence made it holy. And so if you touched the ark, what happened? He died. I mean, just even Uzzah, poor guy. I don't know Uzzah. I don't know him personally. But, you know, the ark started to kind of, he put his hand out to try to, you know, Uzzah's gone. <laughs> wow. If you put the ark into a room with another lowercase god like Dagon, Dagon would just keep falling over until eventually his head would fall off because the ark of the covenant was holy because God's presence was there. So this wasn't holy in and of itself, it was holy because God made it holy, because he consecrated it and his presence was, was with it. And that's how we are, right? That helps us to understand why it's so important to him that what he has declared us to be matches who we are and how we act. So he has set us apart for himself and he has set us apart from the world. This also reminds me of when I was growing up and I wanted to do things the other kids were doing. I would tell my parents, all the other kids are doing it. And they would say back to me, well, you're not other kids. You know, you remember that? You know, they expected something different from me. They held me to a different standard because they cared about me and they cared about the reputation of our family. God has made us holy and he wants us to act accordingly through the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, I can't, I can't produce holiness, but I can allow God to be holy through me. So we can't escape the fact that if we've made, been made holy by God, if we, if we are being sanctified, there will be evidence of that fact. And this doesn't mean that we will achieve perfect holiness, but as James puts it, faith without works is dead. And a lot of people will claim to be Christians, but at some point, if their walk doesn't match their talk, if there's no evidence of anything there, you have to question whether the claim is real. So there's a great saying, faith alone justifies, but the faith that justifies is never alone. And that's, that's true. We need, to, we need to understand that. One of the dangers that we face at the door as pastors because we preach a gospel of grace, continually preach a gospel of grace, is that someone could come to the conclusion that, that works and obedience and holiness don't matter to God or they're not an important part of the Christian life. But that could not be further from the truth. They do matter. They are important. The Bible is full of imperatives that tell you as a Christian how you're supposed to walk, how you're supposed to live, how you're supposed to conduct your life. The problem is we have to make sure we get the order of these things right. Do I behave a certain way so that God will love me and save me? Or does God love me and save me so that I am now willing and able to behave a certain way? You see the difference in those things? One is something that I do. One is something that God does. And it's a result of what God has done. That's what we're called to be. So God wants his people to be holy and he's provided the means for us to do it through giving us the Holy Spirit by making us a new creation, and by giving us a heart that can pursue holiness. So that's kind of the idea of what sanctification is. Now Paul's going to give us a practical way that we've been, um, we would see how this would work out in our life, and it's found in verse 3. It's a controversial subject, I'll warn you, kind of heavy on the day after Christmas, you know, so, you know, get ready. Here we go. It was controversial in their day. Still controversial today. So here it is, verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. So he says the part of being set apart 
as holy by God includes abstaining from sexual immorality. The Greek word for sexual immorality will sound familiar to you. It's porneia, and it's where we get our word pornography. But Paul, is what he's referring to is not just limited to that. We, we have to be careful because people today have gone to great lengths to redefine what sexual immorality means. But fortunately, the Bible makes it really clear for us, so we don't have to wonder. And it's a super unpopular, I'll just warn you, it ain't a popular view, but it's the Bible's view. So, you know, and of course, the other thing we've seen is that many Christians, especially younger generations right now, have bought into the idea um, that we have to be careful with how we define this because we'll be thought of as hateful or intolerant if we don't you know, change this view. So there's a lot of pressure on us to do this. You know, one, we kind of want to, two, we're kind of being pushed in that direction and, and told that we're not very nice people if we don't see it this way. So what does the Bible mean by sexual, sexual immorality and what does it conclude? I would just say that the Bible is consistent from page one to page, you know, whatever the last page, how many pages in the Bible? Chad, look that up to the last page. We'll go with that. It's consistent. Starting in Genesis, we see God's plan. We see a clear design and desire by God from the start. It's not like it's, it's hard to figure out. We, we want to make it hard to figure out, but it's like it's really right there if you just want to just pay attention and accept it. problem is we don't want it. So in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 7, 2, Paul clearly defines in the most succinct way possible, I think, God's answer to the question as well as what's necessary to not be sexually immoral. And this is what it says. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman her own husband. That's pretty straightforward. That's pretty simple. This means that any sex that does not fit into that very narrow category, according to God, is sin. Right? Again, not popular at all, but clear. Now, some of you may have already revolted inside over this idea. It's a, it's a natural thing for it's something to kind of kick up at us and go, wait a second. Paul anticipated that. <laughs> kind of like that. He, he knew that the people in Thessalonica were going to go, wait a second, because their culture was a mess when it came to this kind of stuff. And you know what it looked a lot like? Our culture today, which is kind of a mess when it comes to all this stuff. So Paul anticipates kickback. And this is what he says in verse eight. So if you're feeling, if you're revolting inside right now, here you go. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God. Who gives his Holy Spirit to you? So he's basically saying, if you have a problem with this, you need to take it up with God because he's the one who defined it this way and he's the creator. He gets to, he gets to make these definitions. He's also saying, if you have complete disregard for, for God's will and his design, what his word says, something's wrong because he's given us his Holy Spirit to guide us into truth, to transform our minds so that we will accept the things of God. I can just say straight up, before I was a Christian, I thought very differently about all of these things. I can go down the list of abortion, drinking, drugs, sex. I thought different about all of these things. When I became a Christian and God's Spirit entered my life, I started thinking differently. All of a sudden, I hated these things. I knew that they were wrong. It's something changed. But if we cannot or will not accept God's definition of things, we need to, we need to stop and think about what the implications of that are. What does that mean? And I know sometimes the reason is because it's personal. When, when you attach a face or a life with, with some of these things, it gets hard. Um, maybe you are struggling or maybe you know somebody who's struggling in, in some of these areas. And, it, and it's so personal that you have a hard time accepting what God's word says. And I, I, think, I think we all have family members or friends or people that we know that, that would fall into these categories. And, and maybe we do as well. And so... 
it, you just kind of want to go, well, maybe we don't have to go so, you know, you know, so hard on this thing. But I would just sit encourage you in this way and say there's a way for us to be loving, respectful, and kind to someone who does not agree or adhere to this definition of sexual immorality and still agree with God. Okay? Um, these are not theoretical scenarios. These are things that all of us deal with on a daily basis probably in, in people's lives, people we know. People who are living together outside of marriage, people who have same-sex attraction, people who have gender identity issues. What do we say to them? How do we treat them? How do we make sure that we are loving them, but also being truthful with, you know, to them? And I thought about this. I don't, I don't have, um, you know, my kids, some of them have fallen into some of these things. Some of them haven't. But, I, you know, when I, when I think about what I would say to them, I would want them to know the value that they have and how God has made them. His design is beautiful and perfect. Going against that is disrespectful and offensive to God to the one who made them and fashioned them according to his divine wisdom and purpose. I would want them to know that they will never be at peace until they align with God's desire for them because he's built them that way. We're not going to find peace if we're going against God. We won't. None of us feels right in this world. I think that's fair to say we don't. We don't feel right in this world, uh, especially when we're not in harmony with our creator. And the answer is to be reconciled to him. That's when things start to make sense. That's when the whole inside of us gets filled and we can start to experience the wholeness and the love and the acceptance that we all long for. But if we go against God and go against his will, it will have the opposite effect from what they're hoping to accomplish. I think so many people think that if they, if they change this thing or if they go this direction, finally they'll feel right about themselves. That's, it couldn't be further from the truth. It will actually drive them further away from what they're looking for and leave them even more disconnected, more frustrated, and more hopeless. And there will be this continual feeling of remorse and guilt and alienation, not only with God, but with, with most of the people in their lives as well. And, and these, this is played out over and over and over again. You can just look at study after study after study. The people have gone down these roads. It didn't do what they were hoping it would do. It actually made it worse. Why is sexual immorality such a big deal to God? You know, I think a lot of people believe that it's because God is a killjoy who doesn't want anybody to ever have any fun ever. So that's why he's against it. Right? Well, I, I would just say, who created, who created sex? God did. And he made it pretty stinking amazing. You know, he did that. Oh, this is who God is. It's like he made it pleasurable for a reason. So it's not true that he doesn't want anybody to have any fun. But just like everything else, there's a holy way to enjoy something, and there's an impure way to enjoy something. Right? Somebody once said, fire in the fireplace? Good. Fire outside of the fireplace? bad. That's the difference. There's something about us, though, that we want what we're not supposed to have, right? We, we want to do the thing we're not supposed to do. I don't know what that is, but there's like, if, there's, if God has said to do it this way, I'm going to do it the other way. If God says this is right, I'm going to check out what's wrong. There's, we see that even in the garden from the start. Maybe there's something better than what he's offering me. Maybe he's trying to keep me from something. Those are the things we do. He wants us to be full of life and enjoying the things he's made for us, but he wants us to do it in a way that he's set up, not the way we do it. You know, the idea of casual or meaningless sex is prevalent in our day, but there's nothing about sex that's casual or meaningless in God's view. He's designed it to be a holy thing to be enjoyed in marriage. Two people who have entered into a covenant and become one flesh 
That's what, that's what it means to be married, become one flesh. It's, it's a powerful thing. It links two people in the most intimate way. It's more than just a physical connection that takes place. There's something about this thing that God has made that binds us together in a way that nothing else does. I don't know if you realize how powerful that is. You know, a lot of us have pretty bad memories. We don't remember what happened on a TV show or a movie or what happened last week, but I'll bet you most every one of you can remember every person that you've been intimate with in this way. Why is that? Because it's meant to be something that joins you together as one flesh, where you leave a little bit of you there and, and they, you know, the opposite is true too. That's why it's such a big deal. Verse 6 describes how serious God takes all of this. And it's, it's kind of frightening, to be honest. Paul calls it a, a solemn warning. When, when somebody takes what he's given and, and treats it in a way that's wrong or goes against his design, and it's not real clear on what's going on here. He doesn't talk about the specifics, but it, it talks about how he's going to avenge the one who wrongs another in this regard. And I'm kind of glad that it doesn't give specifics. Sometimes if it did, we would just say, oh, that's only, that's only that thing. It just is open. It doesn't, we're not clear. So this is what it says, verse 6. That no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger of all these things. As we told you before and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, ever, therefore whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So I don't know what this means, but it tells me that, that God is really serious about this kind of sin. Um, the fact that he's an avenger of, of people who've been wronged. I know, you know, in a room this size, there's no question that somebody in this room knows firsthand what it's like to be wronged this way. Um, it's one of the hardest parts of pastoring, quite frankly, is to hear some of the things that people do to each other sometimes. It's horrifying. And I, I love that it just says, sometimes people will say, where's God in this? I don't know exactly, but I know from this verse that he's not just sleeping at the wheel. He will avenge these things. He cares about what people go through in this regard. And so, sorry, doing that thing I do again. Stay in the notes and then you won't cry, Brent. That's what we need to do. Sorry. What I would encourage you though, even though these things are hard, they're, they're difficult, trust your father with these things. He knows what's best for you. He made you and he wants you to enjoy life in a beautiful way that he's created. It's clear that God has a clear design and desire that there's blessing in doing things his way and walking according to his ways. You know, it's kind of like when we, I know, you know, as men, we get, you know, the Christmas time, we have to put things together for our kids or grandkids. And the first thing we do is we take the instructions and we're like, we don't need these you end up with something pretty messed up <laughs> at the end of the day. You do need these. And when it comes to the way God has made us, he's given us a blueprint in his word of how he wants this done. Follow the instructions and, and, something, and it's going to turn out really well. Okay. Now, if there's somebody out there, by the way, who has blown it when it comes to sex and, and is feeling maybe like I'm, I've gone too far with this, I'm unworthy or unforgivable, I would just remind you of God's ability to redeem any situation, to redeem any person to make us holy and to keep us holy. There's a, a pastor who had a, I'm going to steal from him, but I'm going to give him credit and I won't do it justice. But if you ever want to go and look at it, Matt Chandler did this thing on, on it's a kind of a viral sermon that he did one time. And he was talking about his days in college. Um, he and his friends had befriended this lady, a 26-year-old single mom. They would try to, they were trying to just witness to her and win her to the Lord. So they would go over and watch her kids and stuff. She happened to be 
in an affair with a married man, but they were still trying to invite her to church and, and show her the love of God. And they, they invited her to do a church thing that was going on. About a thousand students were there. And they, she came that night. They, she took him up on the offer finally and came. And the pastor was talking about sexual impurity, but not in a gospel-centered way. He was talking about it in a way that's like, you know, well, you better, you know, you better knock it off or you're going to get into, you know, with VD or something. You know, God's going to strike you. I mean, it was that kind of a sermon. It was really messed up. And when he heard that was the subject, he went, oh, no, what's going to happen? So the, the pastor's big, you know, way to illustrate this was he had this beautiful, pristine rose. Gorgeous. Nice. And he said, hey, I want everybody to, to look at this rose. I want everybody to handle it. I'm going to pass it around. I want you to smell it. I want you to touch the petals. I want to make sure everybody gets a chance to, to you know, get a hold of this thing and, and see, you know, look at it and, and all that. And so he preaches for a while. And at the end of it, he goes, okay, where's my rose? Where's it at? And, you know, he goes over and he gets it back. And it's just all messed up. I mean, it's broken. The petals are all off of it. It looks terrible. Nothing like what it was beforehand. And his big crescendo that he wanted to get across to the people there was he held it up and he said, who would want this? And it was supposed to make everybody feel, I guess, like, they, you know, I don't know what he was going for, but Matt Chandler, the pastor, said that everything inside of him right then, he just wanted to hurt this guy. He wanted to stand up and yell, Jesus wants the rose. Jesus wants that rose. That's the message of the gospel, that, yeah, we're broken. Yeah, we're messed up. Yeah, we're defiled. But he wants us just the way we are, and he wants to make us his. He loves us that much. He will take us and make us beautiful. And so that's the message of the gospel. He wants each one of us, and he wants to change us and make us into something better. And he wants us to walk in a way where we have life. So that only comes through relationship with him. And the good news is that God has provided a way for us to have a relationship with him through his son and through what he did for us on the cross. And that's why we, that's why we commemorate communion. That's why we enjoy this. Um, it's just to remember that this is Jesus for you. This is Jesus's body broken for you. This is Jesus's blood shed for you. And the reason Jesus did that is because then it wouldn't be required of you. This is our, this is our holiness. This is our righteousness on this table. It's for believers to come and enjoy all that God has done for them. He is our worthiness. So I'm going to pray and then we'll enjoy communion. Father, thank you so much that um, you are so good, so faithful, so amazing that you would want anything to do with sinful people and yet you delight in making beauty from ashes and in, in turning um, broken people into, into whole people through your son. We just acknowledge that Jesus is amazing. We thank you for what he's done on the cross on our behalf and we pray, Lord, that we would hold out that hope and that light to anyone in the world around us who needs to know that right now, and that we would cling to the fact that you began a good work in us, you will complete it, and we can take that to the bank. So thank you for Jesus. We worship you now. Amen.